Father, we um, we are grateful for um, this moment to study your word, to come before you, and to be challenged, um, and to learn more about your character and your plan and your sovereignty. And so, Father, I pray your blessings on Ashley as she comes now to teach us. Will you give her, um, Lord, just a firm and clear recollection of what she has prepared? Will you bless her words as they touch our hearts? And Lord, may she feel your presence as she delivers this teaching this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can everybody hear me okay? All right. Thank you, Christine. If you're in the hall, you can come in. I haven't started. (laughs) Okay, so I'm so happy we're here together. Like Christine said, the weather's not wonderful, and something about this makes you want to stay in your bed. So to see a full room of women is really exciting to me, so thank you for that. Um, If you'll go ahead and pull your Bibles out, if you've got them, and turn to Esther 1. We're in 1 and 2 this morning. And there are going to be two things we're going to focus on today. But before we do that, let's read this together. Can everybody see it on the screen? All right, let's be reminded of what we're doing. We are here to remember that what? God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. He defines our identity, and he invites us into a life of influence. Thank you for that. All right, let's get started. So, there is a main character in this story. If you read your homework, you got to know him pretty well, and his name is Xerxes. And if you read your homework, you will agree with the statement that he is an out-of-control king. (laughs) The absurdity and wickedness that occurs when sinners take control, I would say he shows us that um, throughout this chapter. And then there's another king, right? The The almighty king, and that is God, the sovereign king. So when you're listening today, when you're in your small groups, and as you study, I hope that you notice something, that there was an absence of God's name in this story, but there's definitely the presence of his hand. So today, we're gonna look closely and see how many pieces have to come together for this story to take place. And then we wanna recognize the who. Who is putting those pieces together? So let's get started. What happens when the need for control is out of control? Well, in the case of King Xerxes, the Persian empire lord. And mind you, remember, Kristen told us that empire runs from where? Ethiopia to India. So it's basically the entire known world at that point. And he's reigning essentially anywhere and everywhere that he wants. Who is he? He's a man of extreme wealth. He also comes from a long line of kings. He's someone who had anything and everything he could ever want or need. So that's who he is. And we're going to read in chapters or chapter 1, verse 3 through 9, a little bit about what he does. So if you'll turn to your, in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. In the year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days, 
a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were in the fortress of Susa. That one lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings that were embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in golden goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine, reflecting the king's generosity. And by edict of the king, no limits were placed on drinking, for the king had instructed all of his palace officials to serve each man as he wanted. And at the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Now that sounds like a party. (laughs) 180 days plus seven, right? I don't know about you, but I've never been invited or attended a party that long. As crazy and lavish as this is, it is not an uncommon occurrence. Rulers of the East often gave these lavish banquets. It was a way for them to display in many, many ways their wealth and their power to the nobles, to their armies, and to the common people of Persia. But this party wasn't only for fun or pomp and circumstance. Oftentimes, and in this case for King Xerxes, it was a way to push forward his plans, to confer with and, dis- and um, convince the nobles of an invasion of Greece. His father, Darius I, had invaded once and failed, and before he could return to Greece again, he died. So on one hand, this was a way for King Xerxes to avenge his father's death. But I think as we read and maybe can infer, it was also a way for him to what? Expand his empire. Because 120 provinces from India to Ethiopia weren't cutting it. He was a king who needed and wanted more. It was a way to convince them that they might want what he has too, right? By his boasting, his showing off of his wealth, they should and would support him and his endeavors. After seeing this palace, the golden couches, the silver rings, the marble pillars, the golden table service, how could they not want what he has and submit to him? After all, when you're so full of pride, you have the insight on how to appeal to the pride of others. So what happens when the need for control is out of control? In the case of King Xerxes, manipulation at any cost, it seems, an insatiable desire for more, all with pride in the driver's seat. And that's just verses one through nine. Let's move on to 10, sorry, 10 through 12. And this is where we are introduced to Queen Vashti. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Carsis, to bring Queen Vashti to him with a royal crown on her head. 
He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. So what do we see here? Well, <laughs> we see a very drunk king, right? Someone who wants to assert his authority for the sake of asserting his authority. For no real purpose other than to show off what he's got, right? But this is where it gets a little tricky. <laughs> this is where his plan starts not working out the way he had planned. This was incredibly embarrassing for a king. It wasn't just a woman challenging a man's authority or a wife disobeying her husband. It was a subject of the king's empire in direct defiance of the king's command. A three, two, one punch, right? In the king, it says he was what? He was furious. So this is the part where we start to see cracks in King Xerxes' power. In his lack of control of not only himself, <laughs> but of situations and other people. And this is what seems to propel him further into an out-of-control state. In verse 13, we see him consult with wise advisors. And in verse 15, we see him wanting to punish her to the fullest extent of the law. His vindictive side is showing. An unreasonable desire for revenge. And how is it that he's going to enact that revenge? A decree. Let's read 16 through 22 together. Memucan answered the king and his, only, and his nobles. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before the day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. So, if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When the king's decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive the proper respect from their wives. <laughs> the kings and nobles thought this made really good sense, so he followed Mamukin's counsel. There was not a woman at that table. He sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and say whatever he pleases. In its own script and language. You see, laws and decrees in this time were usually only written in Aramaic. But the nobles and the kings were so afraid of what would happen, so fearful that they would lose their control, that they saw it fit to have it translated into every language spoken and every language read in the entire empire. 
all 127 provinces. This would have been a ginormous undertaking. But what, are the, what extent are we willing to go for to maintain our control in our lives? Imagine what you would do if you were king, right? So let's ask the question again. What happens when the need for control is out of control? Well, if you are King Xerxes, you let the fear of loss of control control you. Because when control is what drives you, when it is your idol, you have no choice but to maintain it. After this, King Xerxes goes on to banish Vashti. And this does not, he does not immediately replace her. Instead, he has now moved on to his invasion of Greece. And last week, Kristen pointed out that all of this story didn't happen in six months. We read it that way, but that's not true. It was over a period of years. And at the time between chapter one and two, we're at the four-ish year mark. He went to Greece, he invaded Greece, and unfortunately for everyone but the Greeks, his conquering didn't go like he planned. <laughs> he comes back to Susa defeated. And this is where we are introduced to Esther and to Mordecai. Look in your Bibles, chapter 2, 1 and 2. It says, but after Xerxes' anger had subsided... He began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. So his personal attendant suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Verse 4 says, after that, the king young, after that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he planned to put it into effect. Verse 5 at the time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai. This man had been a very beautiful, this man had himself a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who we also call Esther. When her father, father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, were brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed into Haggai's care. We go on in the rest of this story to see that Esther is befriended by Haggai, who gives her special attention and guidance. Esther goes through the process, which if you read your homework, is an incredibly long process of preparing to be with the king. Quite the ordeal. Xerxes then finds himself so delighted with Esther and loves her more than any of the other women, and so he declares her king. Queen, sorry. <laughs> he gives a great, great, great banquet in her honor. And then after that, we see Mordecai, Queen Esther's uncle, go on to become a palace official. And then we're plopped back down into chapter 2 in verse 21. And it says this, 
One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. So, what happens when the need for control is out of control? I'm guessing that King Xerxes believed that his power and control would keep him safe. But as we just read, that does not seem to be the case. Now, do I expect King Xerxes to recognize his evil ways and give up the reins of his life to a God that he doesn't know? Absolutely not. <laughs> but we, we need to look at the wickedness and the extreme presence of sin in the land that these people are living in. We need to see that God's people, the Jews, are living under Xerxes' authority and are subject to the very ungodly practices that he practices. So what happens when we aren't seeing any obvious signs of God, when it seems like the government systems of Persia are breaking down and evil is reigning? What do we do? Well, as Christians, and in that case, as the Jews, they remember that God is sovereign. They remember that King Xerxes might be the king of the empire, but God is the king of the universe. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones <laughs> or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So we looked at King Xerxes in his out-of-control state. Let's look for God's sovereignty. And we have to look for it here because it's not explicitly spelled out for us. But if we believe what? We said it at the beginning. If we believe that God is the purposeful, author and hero of our story, if we believe Isaiah 45, that he is a God who works behind the scenes, if we believe Jesus when he said, my father is always working, then we know that God is very present in this story. In the story of Esther and all the Jews, we see God's sovereignty. Queen Vashti's refusal of the king's request is used to push forward the plan of the Lord. What God will require of the queen is not something that Vashti could have given. Esther needed to be queen to save her people. And it was God's plan for her to be queen. Now, I don't want to skim over this. Vashti's story is a very hard story to read, especially as women who have been objectified and exploited. What we don't believe is that God accepts or approves of the sins of this king, his use of harems, and the sensual abuse of women. I do want you to hear that, okay? But what we do believe is that God can and does direct people and decisions and situations to achieve his purposes. And this story is evidence of that. We see God's sovereign hand all throughout Esther's life. 
in the seemingly simple fact that Mordecai is in her life, right? That's God's provision. Her parents died, and he is who was there to care for her and raise her. God also allowed Mordecai a position in the king's court, giving him proximity to her when she was in the harem. We see it in the gift of friendship with the eunuch Haggai, the one who would guide her in exactly what she needed to know to gain the king's favor. And of course, there's the big one. King Xerxes picked her. We see God over and over again inviting Esther into this life of influence. When we were studying Ruth last semester, remember that verse that said something like, and it just so happened? None of this is just so happening, okay? We do need, we need to grasp that. His piecing of things together to push forward his ultimate plan for the world in this story and the rest of history for saving the chosen people, the Jewish nation, is not a happenstance. God knew what he was doing from the very, very, very beginning. Does that make it easy to hear? No. Does it make it easy to read? No. Does it make it untrue? No, it's true. He says this in Isaiah 45, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Now, yes, the wickedness of control, the power, the sickening wealth, the sin here is ever-present. But God is putting together all of these situations to show his place on the throne and to show us that no decision can thwart any of his purposes. He is using all of the people, even the pagan kings and queens. Warren Wearsby puts it like this. Every man or woman in a place of authority is second in command for Jesus Christ as Lord of all. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. King Xerxes might be the king of the empire, but God is the king of the universe. So what does that mean for us? When you look at this story, where do you see yourself? Esther, right? Like that's the obvious answer here. We all want to be Esther. Do we though? I don't don't know. If you read that story, I'm not sure. Okay. And it is our tendency to read this story and to put ourselves in the story as Esther. And yes, we will all have many for such a time as this moment. But the reality is we struggle with the same sinful desires that existed in the heart of King Xerxes. So what happens when our need for control is out of control? Did my slides just go away? Oh, there we go.
Okay, how many of you have felt like that? Okay, only two people. Wow, you guys are better than me. As funny as that is, it's true, right? We are constantly grasping for control of things that are totally out of our control. And I know. We can look at King Xerxes and we can say, yes, but he's a pagan and I'm a Christian. And no, we aren't kings of Persia. We don't often throw six-month-long parties. Our houses are not full of marble pillars, uh, silver rings, and I don't know, but I don't think any of us have solid gold couches laying around. But we are all either currently trying, have tried, or will try to control the things in our lives to the point of idolizing that control. And when, (laughs) sorry, this is, I was like, God, is this for me? Is it just for me? Can you make it just for me? And he's like, no, it's for everyone. So here I am. I'm very, this is vulnerable for me because control is my favorite thing. I think I'm in it. Okay. But, right, when control becomes our idol, what does it do? It, It pushes us further into our sinful nature. Like King Xerxes, we will use manipulation to maintain our control. We're pushed deeper into the sin of pride becoming boastful. Further into our insatiable desire for more. More money, more influence, more likes, more recognition, more status. We find ourselves asserting our authority over and over and over and over again. To what end? Have you become angrier? Maybe vindictive? Are you more afraid than you've ever been? What has your need for control done to your relationships? Is God asking us to recognize our idolization of control and give up the reins of our lives to a God that we do know? Absolutely, yes. When the wickedness and extreme presence of sin is too much, when God's people, us, are also living in a world that is constantly unstable, and always prone to sinfulness and lawlessness, how are we going to respond? When we feel like we aren't seeing any obvious signs of God, when our governmental systems feel like they are breaking down, when we feel like evil has taken the reins, what do we do? Well, we can remember stories like Esther's a story with real people living in real places. For some of us who've lived a long life, we can remember when God had his hand on our life, which, by the way, is all the time. But we can remember moments where we knew it wasn't us. 
where there was no possible way that thing was going to work out, but it did. And when you're in that moment, that Ebenezer moment, you're on a high, right? And we tend to come down from it and forget. God's asking us, remember, remember what I did. Remember that. So when you're scared and afraid and uncertain and you're grasping for that control, I promise you, I've got it. And I know for sure that there are some of us in this room who look back and we are really like, we can't see that. And it's not that God wasn't there and it's not that God hasn't done the things he's done. Maybe our pain, our situation is blinding us. And if that's the case, ladies, the ones who know what God's done in your life, talk about it. Tell those women. This is a great place to do that around tables in your small group, in conversation with a friend who isn't sure what she's going to do next. Remind her what God has done in your life so that she can hold on to that. God's asking us to remember, and he's asking us to tell other people about what he's done. Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. He's not asking us to fully understand. And you know what? He doesn't need us to agree. He's just asking us to trust him. You see the crown. I don't know where it is. (laughs) The crown that was placed on Esther's head. Oh, thanks, Cindy. Cindy, yes, great. That crown was not placed there to show us the power of King Xerxes or even the obedience of Queen Esther. The crown was placed there to show the people, us, who God is, the sovereign, ever-present, all-knowing king of the universe. The purposeful author and hero of our story who what? Defines our identity and invites us into lives of influence. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of your word and for stories like Esther's, God. For without them, the looking back and remembering would be harder. Without seeing your sovereign hand through um, the history of time, Would we be able to trust you as well? I'm not sure. (laughs) But this gift of your word is invaluable. And we thank you so much for that. Lord, I pray for the women in this room that you would show them in their own lives where it is that they're idolizing control and that you would guide them in letting go, that you would comfort them and assure them of who you are. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.